Welcome to Three Boys in a Bar, your weekly film and whiskey review podcast. Join us each week as we review a film and a whiskey. You can follow us on Instagram at Three Boys in a Bar, or send us an email with your own film reviews and whiskey recommendations. Three Boys in a Bar at gmail.com. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to Three Boys in a Bar, the weekly film and whiskey review podcast. I'm here with my good friend Tom. Hey. And my good friend Will. Hello. Cheers, boys. Uh, welcome to the bar. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ching, ching. Yeah. So uh, this week we uh, had a nice little selection from Tom. So, Tom, what did we review? Well, boys, going back to Netflix, but one movie that I think we I, I really wanted to see is um, David Fincher's uh, Mank. So Gary Oldman is a chameleon at playing risky, complex characters, and he delivers the as the articulate and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz or Mank, as he is known by his friends. The film begins as Mank is escorted into a ranch in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Washed up and rejected by the Hollywood elite, he is given one last chance at redemption when he is hired by the young impressionistic Orson Welles, played by Tom Burke, to write The American, the screenplay for what, for what later becomes the, f- the most famous movie in history, Citizen Kane. Isolated in the middle of the desert, he takes revenge against his former employees, including media magnate William Randolph Hearst, Sir Charles Dance, and MGM studio executive L.B. Mayer, Arliss Howard, as he writes from his experiences when he was a writer employed at MGM Studios. He recounts the duplicitous political machinations in Hollywood amidst the, the upheaval of the Great Depression. Like Citizen Kane, the film moves back and forth in time. You see Manx struggle to finish the screenplay with the assistance of his typist, Rita Alexander, Lily Collins, and caretaker, Fraulein Frieda, Monica Grossman. This is juxtaposed to his life at the studio, with his brother Joseph, Maya Hurst, and his friendship to uh, Marion Davies, played by Amanda Seyfried. David Fincher directs a delicious sojourn into the 1930s Hollywood, based on a screenplay written by his late father, Jack Fincher. Gary Oldman is absolutely perfect as Mank, a self-assured yet self-destructive individual who is an entertainer among the Hollywood elite, while undermining its status as an institution of power. Mank is not afraid to make enemies. Like all his other directorial efforts, Fincher is meticulous behind the camera, producing some wonderful scenes, and the ones that I would think were fantastic was the walk through an extravagant zoo located on Hearst's private Californian estate to the sublime tracking shot in the halls of MGM with L.B. LB Mayer. The technical talent is clearly on display. Eric Meshmit's camera work, shot in black and white, Trish Somerville's costume design, and and Jan Pascali's beautifully realised set design accompanied by good lighting work, although I would say some interior shots could have been better realised. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross deliver a a great score, combining jazzy tunes and noirish melodies. The supporting cast, I think, are all excellent. My highlights, I would particularly say, are Amanda Seyfried. Sir Chard Dance gives a softly spoken performance but speaks with the authority and conviction that only Sir Charles Dance can. Lily Collins is also a highlight. If there is one issue with this film, is that the film can is that the film takes too long and it middles throughout most of its 130-minute runtime. The dialogue is fast and rapid, rapidly paced, but overall the film just feels slower compared to Finch's earlier works. However, as Mank himself says during the movie, one cannot capture a man's life in two hours, but it can at least leave an impression of that person's life. For cinephiles who have a love for 1930s Hollywood, I reckon this is one cinnamon roll you cannot miss. <laughs> Marco, what did you think? 
Look, I, th- I thought it was a it was interesting to watch because I think the the way that it captured old Hollywood was phenomenal, and the the wheeling and dealing that went on to make these pictures and the uh, the real identities that studios had back then. I mean, they're talking about uh, Universal being the the monster movie people, which I mean, they're still trying to bloody do that now in twenty twenty. So, uh, which I thought was phenomenal, and the fact that the whole film is black and white. I think is quite an amazing thing. And one little detail that I really appreciated was they actually had the projectionist marks. Yes, in I love that. I love that. Yeah, which um, like for those who are not cinephiliac enough to uh, to know what they are, it's the the projectionist marks are the little dots in the corners that were there for the projectionists when they had to change reels over to the, the other projector, which now we no longer see very often because. Most cinemas are now digital, but little details like that and little aberrations and all these lens flares, not not J.J. Abrams' lens flares, but just really subtle sort of haloing of the lenses was quite beautiful in its imperfection. Mm. And, I mean, we spoke about Tenet being technically a little bit imperfect last week, and I think that this film, that those imperfections sort of made the the character of old Hollywood really come to life and you really bought it. Even though, obviously, old Hollywood was just like we're seeing reality now. It mm-hmm. wasn't in black and white, but it's still funny to watch films that look like that. Everything's changed and nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, th- this film was... I don't want to say I didn't like it, but I didn't love it either. It was kind of just two hours of watching Mank stumble his way through his life. I mean, it starts... Like Tom said, it cuts back and forth between him trying to write Citizen Kane and leading up, events leading up to his fall from grace before getting this final opportunity. But there was no real conflict. There's no real drama apart from that. It just kind of meanders on. And the the shining light is Gary Oldman as Mank because the personality of this alcoholic, eccentric writer who really couldn't give two fucks about what people think about him which comes back and bites him in the ass. It's, that's a joy to watch, but why we're watching it is not really present. Mm. There's no real driving force. There's no real conflict. There's no real story. It's just observing Mank, which I suspect is, for some, that'll be a massive draw card. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the performances all around are phenomenal. I think that there was not a weak performance in the whole thing. Gary Oldman, as I mentioned before, Amanda Seyfried as well, Lily Collins. I mean, the list, the list really goes on. Um, I did. I do want to shout out Tom uh, Palfrey though, who played Joseph Mank. Mm, or, yes, because I, I, I first saw him in Iron Fist. Iron Fist, and I while that series was not very good, he stole the show. At, as far as I'm concerned, as in portraying his character, and it's uh, it's great to see him in something else and still bringing a stalwart performance. Will, anything to add? I think we've covered it all. <laughs> see you next week. No, it, I mean, uh, it is the portrait of a man, isn't it? And I'm such a big Gary Oldman fan. I loved him in The Darkest Hour, and here he is again really carrying this film and really doing such an amazing job at realising... Obviously, a real person, but making it fictional. 
So the characterization is just great to watch. And yeah, for two hours, which does feel long, I agree with you, Tom, he's phenomenal and his range is just unbelievable. So actually, I don't actually feel like the movie drags or has any low spots despite it feeling long, which might sound a bit of a um, contradiction, but I, I never was looking at my watch, but I just, it did feel long in the end. But his performance, as we've also mentioned, the supporting cast are phenomenal. I think the strength of this film is how it's shot. So that's those two eras in Hollywood are just stunning to watch. And part of me wishes it wasn't in black and white. So all those costumes and set pieces could have been realized. But obviously, I understand why it was in black and white. And stylistically, it looks very noir. All those shadows and the lighting, the silhouettes you know, right from the get-go, right from that opening title sequence. It's very, very striking. And so I think that there's a lot for an audience to be drawn into, and I think it's a world that I haven't seen portrayed on film like this before. So for me, there was lots of things about it that were really new. I love the cigarette burns, as Marco pointed out, um, and the score. So for me, the score was just stunning. And Tom, yeah, all those clarinets and the trumpets, and, and that's right, between those really jazzy numbers and then the noir stuff as well. As for the overall picture, is it is it really successful? I think there wasn't quite enough in the story for me, which is my feeling of what we're all saying, that I wanted it to go deeper, there to have more stakes, like you were saying, Marco. Um, there were little moments, and once again, I feel like it was relying on the strength of its actors to carry it through. And fortunately, they absolutely do but I do wonder how strong this, this script is if it, if it was in lesser hands, even with a lesser director, but definitely with lesser actors, it possibly wouldn't have been successful. And I think as an audience member, I was certainly left with that little feeling of it could have been better, maybe just tighter or something. It didn't quite get there. It wasn't that it was missing. It just kind of didn't get there. And I can't now recall which movie recently we watched that I think we had a similar criticism that it was, yeah, I'm forgetting it, but but that sensation of, oh, it's not that it's missing an element. It just doesn't quite hit the promise and the notes that it could have. But that said, stylistically, I think it's beautiful. And yeah, it it's a really fun way to spend a Sunday afternoon watching. It does it does try to cover a lot of ground in its in its runtime. And I think one of the, one of the things that I've had a bit of trouble with was um, you get this most you get this you get these flashbacks to the 1930s you're sort of seeing the studios struggling financially and making successful movies at the same time they're trying to they're considering their political allegiances and who they should support in office and there's a, there's there's this kind of relationship between like the governorship of California and the studios and you know who they should be backing those kinds of those kinds of things is all that's that's all very relevant, but then you've also got this other storyline, which is more or less about, which is a rather controversial issue that they address is who actually wrote Citizen Kane, mm. and that was a this is a this is a a it, which is a, which is very interesting, but I don't really think there's much of a relationship between the two issues. Um, they're definitely subplots, but they're not. But like you know, I think it sort of adds runtime, and you're sort of trying to figure out what is this film trying to be about. I mean, on as you've said, Will, it's a it's a portrait of a man's life, um, but as you said, Marco, where's the drive? Um, 
Those flashbacks I also found confusing at the start and maybe it would have been too cheesy to have the 1940s in colour and then the 1930s, um, late 20s, 30s in black and white. But it took me a little while to catch up and then all that subplot around the governorship and that election, I, I was really confused by that and I, I struggled to make the join the dots and the dialogue moves so quickly that I feel like I missed so uh, a lot of the detail on that particular one. What I did get though was uh, some parallels to how the media play out or pull strings and it was doing it then as it does it now. So I appreciated that as a, a similarity if you like, but I, I did find that component of the film confusing, but then I tuned into the titling of the flashbacks and it, it did clear up a little bit for me but certainly initially I was not sure when he first meets Charles Dance's character uh, that timeline I was like oh we're back in the Great Depression where are we and <laughs> but I was pretty sure that we just started at 1940. Yeah I think that the device that they used of like the interior day whatever like that I think that was a brilliant device to yeah. get you into the flashback but I, I agree with you the first First one, I was like, okay, cool, flashback, whatever. And then the second one came, I'm like, okay, is this a direct continuation of what I just saw or is this a different flashback? And then when you kind of realise that it's two parallel stories, then I, at least for me, that's when it started to make sense. Although I actually think that the the flashback story is the more interesting one because, I mean, the, the writing of Citizen Kane's story is just him being a recovering alcoholic sneaking booze while trying to write Citizen Kane. It's just, it's not that interesting when you boil it down to what it actually is. And also that that really old Hollywood, the 20s and 30s Hollywood, is much more glamorous than the uh, uh, hut in the desert that he's in. <laughs> exactly. And the interaction with the two females who are played brilliantly, but the glamour of that that 1930s world is wonderful and huge contrast. Some amazingly, re like some amazing set pieces. I just like, you know, even the, even when he's on the set, and he first meets um, Marion Davies, I thought was a wonderful was a wonderful scene. Just like that, you know, he has this conversation with these two guys under in the the observation tent, mm. um, which then moves on to him meeting Marion Davies. Like it was just really great dialogue. The the dialogue is really amazing. I think these uh, these characters really have authentic voices, and they really. And they, they're all wonderfully portrayed by the actors. But but one thing I will say is just like Tenet last week, I actually struggled quite a lot in a lot of the dialogue to hear it properly. I, I agree. I, mean, I, I agree. I think, I mean, just like the with the cinematography being black and white, there was clearly post-processing on the dialogue to make it sound more like it was recorded. In a 1930s in film. In a 1930s yeah. film. But I think that that's actually quite to the detriment because, I mean, like you said, the dialogue is quite snappy. It's quite – a lot sort of happens in the dialogue. But if you can't hear it, you may as well not have the dialogue there in the first place or if you can't understand it. And I think that, like, I, I've had this experience in a few things that I've edited is that when you know what they're supposed to be saying, it's really easy to hear what they're saying. So – I wonder if, like, because this is literally the second film in a row that we've had this criticism, I wonder if some of these sound designers and directors are editing, like, trying to achieve a sound for their film with the dialogue, with all that, and not taking into account the fact that we don't know what is supposed to be said. 
said. We're actually trying to hear it for the first time and clearly not being able to as often as we'd like to be, which is all the time. And I think similar to Tenet, it was also just, you know, there's this, because we, we as Australians don't really know a lot about what was going on in 1930s Hollywood. Um, I'd never even heard of Upton Sinclair until I watched this film. And so they, they throw a lot of names around and they do speak quite quickly. So whether you can really sort of catch up and really understand what they're talking about. I'm so glad you, you guys had that experience as well because you're right, all the names and the different players and especially when they add the layers of the Hollywood machine but then there's the mayoral election machine and then there's the William Randolph Hearst media thing and personalities and everything mm. that's going on and you're flashing between the two time frames. Yeah, I was like, whoa. But I feel like I only got a quarter of it. And especially because Mank is this amazing character. He's got these amazing lines and part of the amazing characterization that Oldman does is that he has these monologues that are just filled with these amazing observations, witticisms, critiques that are sharp. And he was better, but... I did even lose some stuff because I didn't know the names he was referring to or I just lost some stuff, you know, when he was drunk. He was still very good, but, yeah, I feel like I need to watch it again and do a lot more research about the era to understand the all the power dynamics and, and the environment. Well, his monologue at the dinner party when he's stone-cold drunk is phenomenal, but there are large moments where I had no clue what he was talking about. Like yeah, what he, what we, he was in reference to, or being able to hear what he actually said, and I think the combination of the two of those things is, it makes it very difficult to sort of follow what's actually going on. Definitely, and because it's the climax really of the film, he references so many things that have come before again that I'd kind of missed in the names and the context. I was like, this feels really dramatic, but I don't quite have all the context to connect as an audience member. Well, onto one positive that I found though that the cinematography and the editing I thought was immaculate because it was clearly trying to replicate that Citizen Kane like old Hollywood thirties and forties style. I mean, the opening shot is a single beautiful block, beautifully blocked take where they bring him into this cabin and like he's got a broken leg and. And it just, it's beautifully choreographed and blocked. And I think that it's an art form that has been lost in a lot of films now where you do just cut, you don't linger on a shot. And it wasn't to build suspense. It was purely just to get you into the moment. I'm really glad you mentioned the editing, Marco, because I thought the fade-outs were effective. Yeah. The way they, like, focused on the, the light source in the background mm. before it goes black was was a really good touch. And it combines with the last line of the scenes. It really has this old Hollywood thing of quite a dramatic final line of dialogue before the fade out. And it's such a interesting, dramatic technique used incredibly. And it's not something we see nowadays. So both the fade out and with that last line of dialogue, really yeah. kind of dramatic. It really puts a full stop on the scene 
Yes. Which I think was actually quite good talking about the cutting back and forth. I mean, I think that a lot of those times, the fading to black, you knew that whatever you were watching at that time or what era you were watching is now over and now you're going to something else. I think it was quite along with the the scene headings at the bottom to tell you that you're in a flashback now. I think that was quite effective in guiding the audience to where they just say that this is a different era, this is a different thing. That scene is now done. Something else is coming now. Yep. If there's one thing though, from a just from a technical standpoint, and I did flag this um, earlier on in my introduction, but I just think the lighting didn't always work on the interior shots because you would have actors standing in the way of the light source, and then it would create these shadows where you actually can't see the facial expressions and some of the actors giving performances. See, I loved that. I thought that was a very deliberate choice because I think that's an old Hollywood thing. I mean, a lot of the silhouettes and like uh, there's some beautiful silhouetting of Lily Collins in in the, mm. the the shack. She pulls open the blinds and that sort of thing and you don't have to see her physical performance, but the shot is just beautiful and the silhouette is amazing. So I I, I don't think that's a technical fault. I think that's definitely a decision. Yeah, okay. But he, yeah, obviously it didn't resonate for you. But oh, I just, I mean, I just like to, s- I like to be able to see. The <laughs> well, it's like we're saying we like to be able to hear. So, yeah. you know, yeah. No, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I get that entirely. So we didn't mention at the top of the show, but mm. uh, Will has brought us a beautiful whiskey that we've been sipping on during the podcast. So, Will, what delicious... <laughs> A bit of a letdown. Boy, <laughs> it didn't even register. Oh, there, there we go. That's better. It's got a little, little sing song to it. So, what, what delicious nectar of the gods have you supplied Ooh. us with this time? Uh, okay, so I did promise last week that we would keep with the Australian whiskey theme, but due to my poor organizations, I've had to skip <laughs> over the, the big, big pond. But it's appropriate because it is American whiskey, of which we haven't done a lot. And considering we are watching or reviewing an American film. It's from old Hollywood, isn't it? It's from old Hollywood. Actually, well, it is from the West Coast, but it's from Portland, Oregon. So it's the Westwood American Single Malt Whiskey uh, Grained Glass. And what's there's not a lot in terms of the story that's remarkable. So I'm just going to skip straight to the tasting. Well, you know, we've, we have been sipping on it. I've really enjoyed this. I'm not sure it's hitting the heights of the last two. So, you know, apologies. What is interesting about this? I do know some fun facts. Uh, This actually hasn't been aged for very long in barrels. In fact, they don't even give a year. So I think it, it's, it's obviously spent some time in barrels, but they don't tell you exactly how long interesting but it's got to have spent a certain amount of time in barrels there hasn't it otherwise it can't be called a whiskey isn't that uh well all i know is that in terms of what can and can't be classified as a whiskey it's more to do with the alcohol abv content so this sits at 45 so anything above 40 i don't yeah look there might be something and again a shout out to listeners if you can please educate us on this i would love to be educated because i did do a little bit of um research that um, I didn't find anything other than this hasn't been aged for any particular length of time in a barrel. I know it has spent time in a barrel because um, it was an American oak something, but it yeah it didn't give me a um, a time. Anyway, what do you boys think? 
I was saying this. this I was saying this before we started, but I'm getting like a smell of like Turkish delight. Oh There's yeah, really subtle, really like just in the background. It's a very soft. Mm, there's that sort of like weird jelly sweetness of Turkish delight just sort yeah. of lingering there on on the nose, but like I I get weirdly almost like a a boggy kind of smell like you know like it's the lush greenery in the morning and there's that moisture in the air maybe a little bit of fog it's that kind of like earthy moistness I don't know maybe I'm I have no idea what I'm talking about but um. That's what I'm getting mixed with this Turkish delight. So it's kind of like you've you've gone on a hike in the Scottish Highlands, you've cracked open a Turkish delight, and you've dropped it in the in the bog. Maybe maybe you've hiked the Pacific West Trail, considering we are in <laughs> North America. Yeah, I, I know, but I don't know any. I I, I don't know. The Pacific Northwest know. Trail is is that very long uh, hike that you can do between Mexico and Canada, obviously going through America, and it follows the Rockies. Um, it was the movie Wild that Reese Witherspoon did. Great movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or does she do the Appalachian Trail? No, she does. She does the Pacific Northwest Trail. Anyway, we digress. Well, boys, you are pretty excellent because I've just done a sneaky sneak, and yes, they talk about um, it being kind of herby on the nose, but then some butterscotch and some vanilla sweetness, but with some zest. And I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, I would say this is a good all-rounder. It it doesn't stick out with any particular character one characteristic, but if you serve this to anybody, you're getting a solid whiskey. It feels refined. It's nice and warm, warming without going too far down a peaty route or a sweet route or and it's it's got a little bit of that harshness at the finish, but not enough to I think discourage some of your like less uh, whiskey inclined drinkers. Yeah, yeah. And other than that, it is beautifully smooth on the tongue. Yeah, this is one you nurture. And look, it says it's the celebration of the American pioneering spirit, so I think it's an appropriate choice for you know when we've been reviewing the sort of Hollywood origin story that is Mank. Or the golden age of Hollywood, really, not the pioneering. But um, yeah. So anyway, that is the Westwood single American single malt whiskey. Remarkable in its unremarkableness, I will say. <laughs> but it gets a thumbs up. So I'm going to go around the table. I think for our final scores for Mank, I'm going to start with you, Will. Oh, it is another hard one to score. But pressed, oscillating between a three and a half and a four, and uh, I will give it a three and a half. However, the performances would kick it over to a four. But overall, oh yeah, no, no, it's a four. It's a four. It's a four. And I will not be surprised if Oldman gets a nomination for an Oscar for this one. Oh, totally, absolutely. Are you sure it's a four? Are you sure you? Well, I don't know. You were saying before we recorded that you're going to revise your tenant score. So I feel like I've got to get out of jail free card (laughs) if I come back in five minutes or next week and re. No, no, but I'm going with a four because I did really love this film. I think it's worth a watch. It's a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon, even if the script doesn't quite hit the heights that it's it's promised. Thanks, Will. Tom? I'm giving it a four as well. This is a, I think... I mean, notwithstanding that, uh, you know, there's there are some pacing issues, really what you're supposed to do is just 
have the experience of seeing 1930s Hollywood um, and just being enveloped by some great performances. And that's what this film is all about. Gary Oldman is definitely going to get nominated for Best Actor again for the third time, I think. He but really excels in these roles, oh, right? Yeah. But he hasn't won one, has he? Uh, Darkest Hour. Oh, he did win that, didn't he? And then he was nominated for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But listeners, correct me if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm sure that's right. This is with no research at all, so we could be making things up. Is that why Google when we could get, you know, people ringing us in and abusing us or correcting us? <laughs> Marco. So, so a four from you, Tom, and a watch a as well, I'm assuming? Yeah, definitely. Well, for me, and as Will touched on before, I just want to very quickly say <laughs> from last week, I, I gave Tenet a three and a half and I would like to revise that. Very quickly. This won't happen very often, listeners, I, I promise. But I, I want to give it a two and a half. That's I'm not going to qualify that but because um, we're not talking about Tenet, but I want to just say that for the record. Which leads me into to Mank. I mean, I think I would give it a low three. Ooh. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's somewhere between two and a half and three for me. I, I think the performances were great. But it just meandered, and to be honest, I can think of a lot of other things I would rather have done with two hours of my life. Ooh, scathing. Like playing I'd Overwatch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd, I, I, do, I think, unfortunately, for me, this film, it didn't say anything. It didn't do anything. It just was. And, and maybe at least in it wasn't the film I was expecting to watch, and maybe I wasn't in the right sort of mind frame to watch it. But it didn't resonate with me apart from the performances. The movie as a whole, unfortunately, I, I can't give it any higher than a three. <sighs> Controversial, I know. I can see the looks on your faces there. No, I see Disdain. that though. Like, I mean, you either you either see this you either see this film as just a as an experience to watch, or you see it as something that just suffers from pacing issues and doesn't really have a lot of and doesn't have a but you know. That doesn't have a, a linear direction, so to speak. Um, mm. But like I, but like I said, this is a cinnamon roll. A cinnamon roll. Yes, you need <laughs> to watch the film to understand that reference. But I, I actually <laughs> want to query something. I don't think the pacing itself, like the editing, was really strong. It was more the stakes in the story and that not going far enough. But I actually felt like mm. the movie was constructed evenly, just from my personal perspective it was just the story that didn't quite go to the lengths i i hoped for i guess the stakes were never never felt high enough yeah i mean we we never believed that this was his last writing citizen came was his last chance i mean i don't yeah. think that was made very clear no. until well, quite late in the film which meant the stakes weren't particularly high or even the vices of the alcoholism and the gambling was putting his life or his marriage in jeopardy. It was always a characteristic that made him who he was in a l almost lovable roguish way rather than demons that he was fighting that may or may not overtake him. Like how many movies do do that really well? Like the internal stakes um, and obstacles of a character such as addiction can wreak havoc on you know, talent, in this case, a writer, the relationships, both professionally and personally. And so they're walking that tightrope between is he going to win over his demons or, you know, fall into them. And in this, I just felt like 
the alcoholism was just more of a, a characteristic that actually endeared me to him. There was no consequence because of it. Even the gambling, there wasn't really a consequence whether, you know, to him personally or uh, his family, even though there were lines that referred to both those vices being of concern. It was never, as a viewer, I never felt like his life was in danger from those things, which I think potentially could have escalated the the tension and, and solved that problem that we've been talking about. Because, mm. I mean, even with his wife, poor Sarah, th- there's a little bit of conflict towards the end, but it's not even... It's not really even anything. It just kind of happens and then it's like, okay, we're good now. Great. Yeah. Well, she even says, I, I st- kind of still love you anyway. I love you because of all these things. Um, don't ever call me poor Sarah again, but I'm always going to stick beside you. Yeah. And like, I think through the film, the she was always sticking beside it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and through the film, she's sticking by him anyway and is loving him despite of these things. And we love him because of that, but we also don't feel that it's of um, – there's – great risk around it, which I didn't mind, but could have been an opportunity to really amp amp it up. I'm not saying that that would have necessarily worked, but I'm just pointing it out. I think I, I think this is almost like a bit of a biopic in, in a way. I mean, it's clearly presented in a dramatic way, but I think that there's some things... That I, I get the feeling that there's some element of this that they've kind of stayed true to him as a character i'm not sure yeah i don't know anything like, about mankowitz so i don't know anything about it but with the like right at the end they do the classic mm. biopic thing where they say this is what happened to him after the the film's events concluded and yeah i, I wonder if maybe that's it's the like we've spoken about with chicago seven maybe st- staying too close to the facts and not drama- like dramatizing it enough to really make it into an interesting story, even though the man might have been incredibly mm. interesting, which we've seen. I mean, we've all said Gary Oldman as Mank was stellar and that he was interesting, but the story that was told around him was not. Mm. Well, it was all this, – this film was entirely, you know, told from his perspective. And I do, think, I do think it's really interesting what you're just talking about, you know, the research done. I got the impression that this was meticulously researched, but there were definitely some things that he um, – that, that Jack Fincher – bridged the gap on and one of those being did does does um does mank deserve full credit for writing citizen kane um so that's actually not entirely known but the way the right but but the way the film betrays it in some way in another way in in a certain way um but i actually thought it was appropriate to do that like you shouldn't you should i think there's a real problem with trying to make films as historically accurate as possible i think it's an adaptation an adaptation of an event as long as you can tell a story and you can create drama mm-hmm. out of the event and as long as it's authentic then that's fine it doesn't have to be a hundred percent truthful well, it almost goes all the way back to a current war yeah 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 hundred percent it was like a history channel channel retelling of, of that and 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 almost the current war was too much trying to show all these different points of view whereas i agree with you tom that regardless of whether it's a historical thing or purely biopic, the filmmaker, scriptwriter, the team have to make a choice about what they want to say, what angle they're going to do. And I think you're right. They make it very clear or a clear argument about who wrote Citizen Kane. I think what's disappointing is 
as well, that dynamic between Mank and Orson Welles, it's not until that final scene where there's any kind of uh, real disagreement and then it seems to have kicked off this absolute hatred or animosity between the two and that potentially also was another opportunity to play it up or to flesh out because it it was almost like an afterthought. Uh, you know, the drama of that relationship, there wasn't really any until right at the end. And, and then I was like, oh, that would have been really interesting to explore. There's also actually a really great interview with Gary Oldman with uh, Deadline. And one of the things that he was saying is that um, Mank was, ac- was actually a, a story consultant, really. Like, whenever there was a script that was having problems, he was the go-to guy in Hollywood. So the fact that he wrote a 325-page first <sighs> draft of Citizen Kane, Gary Oldman's view is that he, ab- he absolutely 100% knew what he was doing and it was almost like a little bit of a fuck you to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that definitely comes through. You know, it's a two-handed middle finger... At the, at the machine in the system. Absolutely. Well, th- th- I think uh, unless we've got anything else to say, I think that's, that is all from us. Thanks for joining us again on Three Boys in a Bar. Next week... We, we are doing our final episode for the year next week for a little bit of a Christmas holiday and we will be back in 2021, assuming we haven't all died from some horrific pandemic. <laughs> But I, I think the most exciting thing that we have to announce is that while we will be doing a Christmas special for our final film of the year, we will also be doing our whiskey extravaganza that we've been teasing throughout the year of trying all the lockdown whiskies that we each individually have tried but have not been able to share. This is a very formal way of saying it's a piss-up. <laughs> I was going to say it's a bit of a year in review because we also thought that we might... Just have a look. So today is episode 29. So next week will be episode 30 to finish off season one. So we will take a journey back through the 30 whiskeys we've tried and the 30 movies we've reviewed to see whether we agree with the scores and the opinions we've had or whether we've learned something over the 30 30 weeks. (laughs) Well, the answer is no for that, right? None at all. (laughs) Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. Let's do this bit again. Thanks for joining us this week (laughs) on Three Boys in a Bar. Uh, If you'd like to drop us a line um, on our Instagram, it is three boys in a bar with the number three boys in a bar. Let us know what you thought about our review scores, whiskeys we should try, films we should watch, or, you know, considering that next week's our last episode, tell us what we've missed. What should we have reviewed in 2020? And maybe in the break we might catch up on some of those films and when we come back in the new year we can talk about things we wish we had have reviewed in the previous year. Um, you could also drop us a line at Gmail, which is threeboysinabar at gmail.com, again with the number three. Um, yeah, well, I've been joined by my good friends Tom and Will. All right, bye. Thanks very much. And uh, thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week. See you. Hey, thanks for listening to Three Boys in a Bar. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Instagram at Three Boys in a Bar or send us your own whiskey and film recommendations to threeboysinabar at gmail.com. Stay tuned for a spoiler cast if we have one happening this week. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.